0: I know you have lots of questions.
1: If you think that you've developed
0: symptoms. Should I avoid large public gatherings? Whether schools should be closed. Welcome to Common Sense. Here we address your questions about COVID-19 with interviews featuring experts in medicine and leaders in community, public, and global health. Here's your host, Dr. Ted O'Connell. Welcome to the podcast, COVID-19, Common Sense Conversations on the Coronavirus Pandemic. I'm your host, Dr. Ted O'Connell. Today, my guest is Dr. Mitch Houston, who is a PhD clinical psychologist. Dr. Houston has been on staff with Kaiser Permanente for the past 34 years. He is the clinical director of psychiatry for the Vallejo and Vacaville Kaiser Medical Centers in California. Dr. Houston is a part of the behavioral medicine faculty of the Family Medicine Residency Training Program at Kaiser Permanente Napa Solano, and he is also in private practice in Berkeley, California. Dr. Houston specializes in the treatment of anxiety disorders. Mitch, thank you for joining me on the podcast today. Is there anything else you want our audience to know about you?
1: No, that sounds great. Thanks very much for having me.
0: Well, it's our pleasure, and we look forward to um, tapping into your expertise as we talk about mental health in in the setting of this COVID-19 pandemic. One thing that I really wanted to talk with you about is hoarding behaviors that we're seeing in our supermarkets, and particularly the idea of hoarding toilet paper. It's been a really interesting phenomenon to think about. We know that most people who get COVID-19 don't get gastrointestinal symptoms, so there's a disconnect there, and, and I would love to hear what you have to say about this topic.
1: I know it's been a super interesting phenomenon and you can pretty much be guaranteed that when you go to the supermarket now, that aisle will be empty. So there are several factors that are occurring that trigger a fight-or-flight response when you look at large group reactions of threat. Initially, it only takes a few irrational responders to trigger a mass reaction. You can think about the bank runs of the 1930s or you can just watch the Nature Channel. Just one startled response triggers the herd. It could be an incorrect response, like an animal could just trip, or like the toilet paper, because toilet paper factories actually run 24-7. And like you said, we aren't using more toilet paper than we ever had before. But once a reaction starts, even the first first responders who now realize it was an unnecessary response start running with the herd themselves. So sometimes we run with the herd even when we don't think the threat is real, just because we don't want to be run over. It doesn't self-correct until the threat disappears, which is an area we can talk about in a minute.
0: I have a personal question for you, Mitch. Have you been hoarding along with everyone else?
1: I sure have. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> several weeks ago, um, my wife would push me out of bed on Saturdays and Sundays and tell me to go do some more panic buying. When I would bring home the bags, she would ask, was there any toilet paper? So uh, I started to run into exactly the same experience that uh, most other people have as well. Besides the empty toilet paper aisle and empty tissue aisle, by week three, it turned into all safe, all the soft paper product. And it was interesting to see what was gone and what was still on the shelves. You probably noticed this as well. But um, somehow the new obvious things are flour, sugar, rice, and then first the inexpensive stuff and then the expensive kind and later beans, frozen and canned vegetables. I think buying canned vegetables was almost a thing of the past. And now it's the shelves are almost cleared out. So that's this very interesting phenomena. Also, I noticed the good shapes of pasta disappeared pretty quickly. Um, And what was left was shapes that you usually wouldn't buy like elbow pasta. I mean, it's pretty desperate. I'm not exactly sure what you do with elbow pasta pasta, but it's just sitting there waiting for someone to uh, be desperate enough to buy it. Also, I noticed there are a lot of other things that just weren't moving off the shelves, like canned pumpkin, frozen okra, and there's plenty of sweet and low if anybody wants any sweet and low. So I um, I also noticed, and I was very surprised when I walked down the alcohol aisle that that was fully soft. And then I thought to myself, well, there's almost an alcohol store, or liquor store on every corner in big cities, and that's not something that people are afraid of losing or not having enough of. And that brings up the the idea that scarcity triggers fear and abundance triggers faith. And what we've run into is the experience of scarcity, even though the toilet paper factories haven't stopped producing at the same amount they always have, begins to trigger that fear response and we lose our faith that things are going to be okay or it's going to be there when we need it.
0: So Mitch, it seems clear why fear is playing a role in these hoarding behaviors. But can you tell us more about why faith is also a factor.
1: Faith and fear cannot occupy the same space at the same time.
0: Two emotions
1: that are generally complete opposites. People have easy access to faith when there's abundance of something. No worry. For instance, wealthy people generally pray less than poor people because they have less concern over their daily bread. When basic needs are met, there's less fear. Another example is, I can leave the bourbon on the shelf because it will be there when I want another bottle. Or when I was at the market, I saw a pyramid of apples and I thought, it'd be nice to have a couple apples, but I don't need. Them. They'll be here when I do. People have an overly rehearsed narrative about threat. Both fight and flight are an attempt to control threat. For instance, if you ever run out of toilet paper and forgot to buy it, you have an unpleasant memory scrambling in that situation. It all works out because you eventually remember. But this time, instead, there is a belief you may not be able to get it again. And this is the part where your fear is not self-correcting because the herd is still running and we are running with them. Since there is no psychological end in the near future, for instance, the vaccine is a year away, then the fear can't be subdued. It is possible that those who get the virus and get through it. Will be the first ones to become non afraid and the first to model faith and patience.
0: Can we dive a little bit more into this idea of the hard goods versus things that have, have a shelf life? You know, it's really interesting, as you brought up, you know, you see the apples being left, and we all know those are going to perish. And meanwhile, everybody's hoarding toilet paper that has essentially an unlimited shelf life. Why aren't people zeroing in on, on the fruits and vegetables that, that you know, that are going to go bad and, and that actually could go into short supply?
1: If- might have something to do with how when we feel out of control of something in our life, sometimes we irrationally begin to control something that's completely unrelated to the thing that we feel out of control of. And then that in turn makes us feel in control. So for instance, globally, we're all experiencing a loss of control related to the virus and something like toilet paper and having it makes people feel in control. And the same would be true of other goods that will sit there and be there when you want it, calms an individual down when they're feeling out of control about something else in their life.
0: And Mitch, on another episode of this podcast, we were talking a little bit about the, the amygdala and, and that driving fear and, and the, other set, the rational parts of the brain. When we're talking about this herd mentality and, and people hoarding, what part of the brain is kind of managing this situation?
1: A lot of it has to do with that prefrontal cortex and the amygdala. The amygdala is this part of the brain, which is like the size of a walnut. It's in the middle of the brain, very protected by uh, the rest of our um, head and brain. And it stores up bad things that have happened. And it also has its own inherited memory for fear and caution and startle and trust. And it's very easy to stimulate the amygdala, amygdala, and it tends to remember bad things um, much better than any other material that you're exposed to in your life. So it is a protective agent, it's a survival agent, and it holds on to uh, things that have happened before that you've basically told your brain you don't wanna have happen again. And the other thing about the amygdala is it has a pattern memory and and a pattern response to threat and fear. So when things look like something else that's happened or something else that's bad, it tends to activate that part of our brain. And then we begin to react in a startled, cautious, disbelieving and um, untrustworthy way.
0: And Mitch, earlier you were were talking about the herd mentality, and we are all social beings, sometimes controlled by parts of our brain that are not so rational. But is there anything in here about um, social status related to possession of these items that that are perceived as important in a crisis? Or what do you think about that?
1: So um, herd mentality can also be related to people being afraid of missing out on something or missing an opportunity for status. So possessing something that is in demand um, puts you in a position of status. In fact, a lot of advertising manipulates this basic fear. You might be aware of, you know, advertising that suggests you have to have a certain look or there's a new and improved, um, you don't want to miss this. That all plays upon that fear we have of, of possessing what others are interested in, possessing and having status. So possession has a lot to do um, with alleviating fears and increasing status and lessening that fear of being left out.
0: Yeah, this is really, really interesting stuff, Mitch. Are are there other examples of hoarding or over-accumulation behavior in this crisis that you've seen?
1: Another area of, of you might want to look at it as overaccumulation or hoarding is social media and specifically primetime news media. You probably noticed yourself and everyone around you obsess- obsessively watching the news. It's very similar to hoarding toilet paper in the sense that half the time both are full of crap. <laughs> um, but, but seriously, um, since threat produces both cognitive and a physical fight or flight reaction, we tend to overdo thought or behavior re- to reduce or eliminate that threat our instincts and intuition about danger don't slow down long enough to evaluate the circumstance in a rational way. Besides, you may be wrong, and as you know, humans are not fond of being wrong. Better safe than sorry is an ingrained reactive thought process. People generally abandon faith, belief, and trust when they feel threatened. For instance, I probably won't run out of toilet paper because the factories are running 24-7. That may work one day, as a thought, but a nice 24-pack of double-fly double tissue means you don't have to believe because you can know instead. People who are afraid prefer manual control, leaving safe for peaceful, non-threatening time.
0: And Mitch, what do you mean by manual control? Uh,
1: taking over something um, uh, in order, and, and letting go of believing that it's going to be okay anyway. So manual control, You might a person might have a closet full of toilet paper and that allows them to feel like, okay, I have enough. But then they might notice that people are still purchasing it and they may begin to doubt that they have enough, even if they have plenty. And so they then abandon again their ideas or their thoughts that it's going to be okay and everything's going to work out all right. And they go into a manual control mode of going back out, which at this point isn't really recommended if you don't need to. And to alleviate that fear, gather more toilet paper.
0: Really interesting stuff. You know, you brought up the news media, and it seems that that is really based in fear, the messaging that comes from the news media, really on, on a around-the-clock basis, not just about this pandemic, but in general. And they're very often using fear to sell their product, which is the news, just like advertisers can try to tap into our own fears to sell the products they're representing. Is that pretty accurate representation?
1: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I've been noticing the same phenomena. Yeah.
0: Yeah, Um, Mitch. So we I'm hearing what you're saying is that we tend to repeat behaviors to alleviate stress and anxiety that we're feeling. Is, Is that correct? And if so, can you tell us a little bit more about that?
1: Yeah. So um, fear triggers checking behaviors in general. These fears and behaviors that come from the the fear trigger may not be productive or rationally based because anxiety isn't particularly good at verifying the real threat. Additionally, anxiety is its own pandemic. For instance, once a day is likely adequate for checking the news and maybe even twice a day. But because there is a fear that you're going to miss something and a belief that information will alleviate fear, there becomes an obsession for more news and information with an inability to know when you've had enough. Similarly, when you hear everyone is buying toilet paper, it triggers an innate fear that, that you have not prepared or that you will make a mistake. And then you go searching, even though you may have a temporary adequate supply.
0: So Mitch, what is it that's driving that need or desire to keep watching the news, even even when it's making you fearful, even when you know that you're up to date on the news for, you know, at least for that half of the day? What's driving the the desire to keep tuned in?
1: Well, we've human beings have, um, you know, been practicing for a long time that knowledge is the best way to calm you down. Like that, that's knowing something is a way to feel in control of something that you don't feel in control of. For instance, we all Google symptom lists when we're feeling a symptom and we don't know what it is. Probably even long before we talk to our physicians about a, a symptom pattern, we've already Googled it because we're seeking an answer to something. It has begun to make us feel upset or uncomfortable, and that's anxiety.
0: So it's almost a hope that by watching, continuing to watch the news, you'll glean more information or more knowledge that will help you feel more in control of the situation and help to alleviate the fear and anxiety when it's actually potentially doing the opposite. Is that fair?
1: Exactly. And yeah, there's lots of examples of that. For instance, you've probably read that article about you know you should avoid uh, uh, anti-inflammatories like Motrin, ibuprofen, and instead use Tylenol. So that's one of those pieces of information, whether it's accurate or not, that someone will say to themselves, "Well, I was glad I was watching TV because I wouldn't have known that." Right. And so then that triggers a need to stay tuned, right? So to be along with the herd, where you're running with the herd, very difficult to step off and say. I know enough information right now. I'll check in 24 hours because the brain says, well, maybe you're going to miss something. And like I said before, we don't, we don't want to miss something. Human beings aren't really good at that. So we'd rather be safe than sorry.
0: And I imagine this particular pandemic is making that situation much worse because this is a novel coronavirus. It's an infection that we as humans, at least in this form, have never seen before. And the research around it and the news around it is coming out so rapidly. And we're, we're actually learning about it very rapidly. But I imagine that's also driving that need to stay tuned and, and get more information. Is that, would that be accurate?
1: Yeah, I would agree with that, 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 um, that there are many aspects that we just don't know. And that, again, triggers that loss of control. And then people are going to seek ways to feel in control. So the most absurd thing is the accumulation of toilet paper. But far more normal and acceptable is just staying tuned for information, even though a lot of that information is a bit overwhelming. So the rates of infection and what happened, you know, um, in the next, you know, three hours hours later just tracking it very closely begins to really overly activate our brain science 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 science. hello podcast fans want to get weird with us come check out the mad scientist podcast we are a weekly show that looks at the history philosophy and hard facts behind your biggest paranormal questions
0: did the government really pay for a psychic spy program yes Is it true that surgery got its start in grave robbing?
1: Yes!
0: Can a roller coaster really kill you? Legally, we can't say so for sure, but sometimes... Yes! Mm. Join myself, Chris Cogswell, and my co-host, Marie Mayhew, as we
1: examine the science, philosophy, and history behind The Strange and Unusual, all to discover what's possible
0: and plausible versus what's, well, just made up. Check us out wherever you find your favorite podcasts. The Mad Scientist
1: Podcast. Um, Even though it's important to know what's going on, certainly it's important to understand what is being um, uh, figured out, um, but then we don't know how to stop looking.
0: Interesting. So, Mitch, I think most of us like to think of ourselves as rational beings. Um, Once we've decided that a thought is irrational or exaggerated, why do you think we succumb to the fear over and over again?
1: So yeah, most people probably have noticed that they get to themselves to a place where they're, they've are they taken care of their business. They have enough supplies. They've talked themselves through the worst case scenarios. They're sort of okay with it, but not really. And then it gets triggered again. And they're back to behaviors that they're really even surprising themselves. Like they're running with the hurt again. So the way I think about that is, although you can always learn something new and novel, you can't really unlearn what you already know. So the case in point is the famous experiments with Pavlov's dog. And as people probably are aware, after a while, um, when the dog was conditioned to get meat every time they rang the bell, after a while, the meat was not given to the dog simultaneously when the bell was rung. And so, the dog eventually ignored the bell. So they kept ringing the bell, they didn't introduce the meat, and after a while, the dog just curled up in the corner of the room and ignored the bell. But then, after about a month, they reintroduced the bell, and the dog started salad again. So this is the way our brain works. If we know something, we don't unlearn that. Now you can teach the brain something new right alongside of that learning, but that old learning is there for purpose. And that old learning is there for purpose, really primarily for survival, to warn you if something seems similar that you want your brain to remember. And so um, another way of looking at this is that safety is a precarious mental state. brain doesn't like to drop its guard since threat and danger is generally coded in a more permanent way in our memory. So once you feel safe, it tends to just be precarious and momentary until something, even sometimes slight, triggers it. So it similarly, it would be like removing a virus protection application from your computer just because you heard that the virus was removed or eliminated. That's not a smart idea, right? So in a real way, the human population that is currently alive will never forget this. There is trauma loading going on right now, which informs the brain in a permanent way. We'll we'll see certain behaviors continue and certain behaviors lessen over time. Our primitive inherited hard drive instincts are highly cautious, very reactive, and as I said before, not trusting. These instincts now have been highly reinforced. In fact, I would predict after all of this is over, which it will be over, um, a new new normal will be people purchasing larger packs of toilet roll instead of those four packs, which I think will just go away from the toilet paper aisle altogether.
0: Do you, actually, I want to ask you that, do you, do you really think that that will be the case where, where the, they will have been, you know, have these memories or even be scarred by the experience and be purchasing larger ones? Or do you think once this is all over, people will step back and look at the situation and say, wow, that was weird. Why do I have so much toilet paper now? <laughs> I, that was totally unnecessary. How, how do you think, what do you, what do you think is going to happen there?
1: Well, I think average, I think that, Manufacturers will take advantage of this in a way where they'll they'll offer larger amounts. And there probably will actually be some small amounts that are offered, but they'll offer larger amounts because larger amounts will be will trigger fear and fear triggers buying. But I, I don't think people will ever go down the toilet paper, toilet tissue aisle in the same way, since you always expect it to be scarce or empty altogether. And it will be every time you see it full again, you'll have a, a maybe just a momentary reaction to it, but you'll have a memory of it that was related to scarcity.
0: Got it. Um, Mitch, they say with great power comes great responsibility. And you as a psychologist, I'm going to ask you this question. Do you have any secret ways of accumulating toilet paper or other desirable items? Are you going to share that with us?
1: Sure, I do. Well, um, honestly, um, people have been interestingly going to the big stores to um, satisfy their anxiety um, and running with everybody to those large stores. And we've seen lines, and um, certainly there's a little bit of entertainment media attached to um, people being afraid and running to these big stores. But I think people will have a bit more luck going to small stores, convenience stores, um, ethnic stores. Those stores tend to have um, the Supplies and they service smaller communities, and um, and people might have more luck in that area when they're looking for staples. Another thing I've noticed at these smaller stores is they have vi- they have very clear instructions about how many per person per item. In some ways, it's a more polite, family, community-based approach to um, people's fears, and there and and that's a really good way of helping people be less afraid. Because when you see a sign like that, it's very calming, and and I think one of the ways which it's calming is it's suggesting that if we help you slow down, it will be here when you need it. And that's sort of that piece that brings up trust and faith, since fear eliminates that from our cognition when we're running with the herd.
0: That's great advice there, Mitch. And it almost sounds to me like trying to actively think differently than the herd where the news media is showing people lined up in, outside of Costco and outside of Walmart. And that's what we all like start to think about. But if you actively start to think differently about going into these smaller stores or the local grocer, you're you're more likely to find the things that you need. Is that what you're kind of getting at?
1: Yes, exactly. And um, you're also supporting small business and you're supporting smaller communities. And it's actually a really nice experience when you go uh, into a place that you don't normally go to. Maybe it's a little less convenient, but they're often family run. It's a good experience. And also in, a, in an environment um, right now where we're all afraid for ourselves and each other and how our economies work. It's a really good way to support your local econ- economy because I think everybody's always been a bit afraid of mom and pop stores going out of business and they do solve problems for people. Convenience and small is the solution in a lot of ways, even though we've moved away from that too big and abundant. So it's a way to kind of take advantage of this time and go back a little bit and see that those smaller um, solutions are really big solutions if you can tame uh, some of that desire to overpurchase.
0: Mitch, you actually just tapped into a question that I've been asking our guests towards the end of each interview. And, and my intent here is to recognize that a lot of small businesses, mom and pop shops, restaurants are really hurting right now. And so I've given each of our guests an opportunity to give a shout out to a small business in their community or a restaurant with the idea of encouraging people to think about doing takeout to help support the restaurant owners and the workers. So we're not- not quite at the end of this interview, but I'll give you the chance to, ask, to answer that question now um, since it came up. So are there any in your community that you'd like to give a shout out to?
1: Well, there are a couple. You know, one of the things I would encourage people to do is like go to their neighborhood media um, uh, emails that they belong to. Or even if you live in a larger city, most cities have small community um, malls or businesses that are near them. Now, we know that a lot of businesses have closed, but I would encourage people to really go towards what's closest to them. It's really good in terms of not you know traveling a lot right now anyway, and, and it has a lot to do with distancing and just being safe. But also, when you kind of scan your local community to see what's open, those are the businesses you really want to support. There, There's less of them now, so it's a little easier to support them, whether they're small convenience stores or they're small restaurants in your area. I, I, that's where I would target. I wouldn't go too far out of my area. I keep it very local and, um, and targeted, and it feels really good to support uh, the people in your your neighborhood.
0: That's great advice, Mitch. Um, The last question I want to ask is kind of more of a a global thought. And that is, what is your advice for people to try to help maintain their mental wellness during this time that is full of fear and anxiety and rapid news cycles and, and just a lot of information coming at us and an atypical situation where we're being asked to stay home and to social distance ourselves from friends and family and, you know, all of the normal situations that we would otherwise be in?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I I think this is an, a unique opportunity. Although we are all afraid and things are changing a lot for uh, family and friends and um, people in our community in terms of their jobs. We're in our homes where we actually don't s- often spend a lot of time. There are a lot of opportunities, but it's really important to create a routine. We know this about people who work remotely and people who ha- have to stay in their homes. That establishing a daily routine is um, one of the ways to alleviate and reduce anxiety. So it could be as simple as, you know, making yourself get out of bed at a certain time, making sure you shower and actually get dressed for your day instead of staying in your kind of casual clothes or your PJs all day. You really want to kind of dress for productivity. And then you really want to look at the things that you haven't been able to get to in your life because you've been in a routine that you've adapted to because it because you were just kind of running with the opportunities in your life or adapting to the things that you needed to adapt to. And you've never really been able to take a break from them and look at them. So it's an opportunity to uh, connect with family more often through all of the media apps that are available to available to us on our phones and on our computers. And, um, and maybe look under the bed and see what's under there that you've stopped under there for a really long time and get some control over things that you can control. Like I said before, I think part of the phenomena with the toilet paper is controlling something you can control. And when you're in your home, and we all know that there's things in our homes or our attics or our basements that we've neglected, that if we take ownership of that or have committed action in that area, it will alleviate a lot of anxiety and it will increase feelings of competence and completion, which is really great for our self-image. Productivity tends to not make very much space for worry, but when we're successful in our productivity, we also then feel better about ourselves.
0: And I would imagine that if we're doing things that are active and, and being somewhat productive, it also gives you less time to sit and think about, you know, what's going on in the world and, and, and the fear and maybe pushes some of that out. Is, is that a fair characterization?
1: Yeah, it does. It pushes it out. I mean, obsessive rumination, everybody gets involved in that from time to time, but you do need time to do it. And the research shows that when you engage in an activity and even a meaningful activity, there isn't much ability to concentrate or ruminate over something that's making you feel out of control. And after all, rumination is just an attempt to solve something that you haven't solved. And generally, you're not going to solve it if you're still thinking about it. But that's just the automatic way in which our brain works is that that it focuses on problems, it doesn't reflect on solution. It doesn't spend much time thinking, oh, that was great the way I solved that problem. instead, when you solve a problem, something you haven't solved then pops into your brain for you to solve it. So there's, I always tell my patients and my friends and family, there's plenty of time to solve our problems um, because your brain's keeping track of them and it's going to tell you when you need to think about it. But if you get engaged in sort of your values, things that really matter to you, family, friends, being organized, being healthy, things that matter to you, you're giving your brain a break and you're creating different pathways for your brain to work um, instead of just getting into that old network. just like a default network of going over the same information in the same way and not having a novel solution to that problem.
0: That's great, Mitch. I like the messaging that you have in there about trying to establish routines in this, what is hopefully a new temporary normal for all of us, creating a sense of control so that you can control the things that are actually controllable in your life. And it really, what I'm hearing is this message of trying to find the positive in this current situation and focus on things that you can do and how you might rethink your life a little bit or develop new hobbies and skills if you have time on your hands. Um, what would you say say about that?
1: No, I think that is a really great opportunity to look at things in your life that you haven't looked at in a while. I mean, you've you've gotten off the merry ground for a second. You've removed yourself from a routine. This is very unusual. We're looking at planet removing itself or being affected by us removing ourselves from that routine and what it can do for a planet. Well, you can do that for yourself too. You take a look at your life. You haven't had time or maybe even you didn't think it was possible to look at it differently. And now is an opportunity to do that. But I'll add another thing about, anxiety, I think it's important to uh, think about. And a lot of times we spend thinking about fear in a way of um, really spending a lot of uh, cognitive energy on hoping something won't happen and being really afraid if it does. And there's a way to switch that gear a little bit and actually thinking for a minute, well, what if it did? And what will I do if it did? And most of us know ourselves pretty well and we know ourselves through adversity pretty well. And sometimes I think we we can say to ourselves when something bad is happening in our life and we don't know what the outcome will be. We can say to ourselves, "Well, I know myself pretty well, and I think I'll. I, I know I'll get through it anyway. I'll deal with it. I, I have access to the people and things that I need, um, or I'll ask for help. But I know myself pretty well, and I will deal with it. I'll get through it. And if we change our language or our thoughts, the way we talk to ourselves in that way, instead of um, being in a dread relationship with the outcome, we start. To To move towards an accepting relationship with the outcome. Now, it doesn't mean that you like the outcome or that you're owning it as something that's okay. You could still say it would be a dreadful or a bad outcome. But the new information that you're giving yourself is, but I'll do it. I'll get through it. I'll be okay anyway. And a lot of time it doesn't occur to us to say that to ourselves because we're so busy dreading that something, you know, that we won't be able to deal with something, that it will be so so bad that will never be the same. And most of the time in life, that's actually not true. Human beings really do very well after bad things that happen.
0: Yes, I think we're surprisingly resilient and, and do generally a very good job of coming together. Is there a phrase that you give your clients to um, to utilize to kind of flip that switch to you know to try something to try to remember so that when they're getting into that cycle of fear, they can try to move themselves beyond that into thinking about it the way you just outlined?
1: Yeah, we use a term a lot, um, and the term is willingness, being willing to um, be open to all possibilities, being willing to feel your feelings instead of trying to make them go away, be willing to do things that you normally wouldn't do because you're afraid they're going to make your anxiety worse. So like be willing not to go out and search for more of something um, and then feel those feelings and allow those feelings to um, go away on their own instead of... Of utilizing behaviors to make them go away. So a lot of times it's about the willingness to think and feel without necessarily getting involved in repetitive um, behaviors that end up just making us feel more anxious.
0: Really interesting, Mitch. Uh, I want to thank you for your time in joining us on on this podcast. I think your insights about what's a really interesting topic with the hoarding and the fear and the anxiety surrounding this. I think our audience is going to find it to be very helpful. So thank you very much on behalf of everyone who's listening.
1: Yeah, thanks a lot. It was great to be on.
0: Great, Mitch. Thanks so much and uh, be safe, okay.
1: you too. Wash your hand.
0: That's it for today. Thanks for listening. This has been a production of Ars Longa Media. Our producers are Madison Linden and Chris again. Our executive producer is Dr. Patrick Beeman. If you have questions about COVID-19 that you'd like discussed on the podcast, send an email to info at arslanga.media. This podcast is for educational purposes only and not intended for medical advice. Be vigilant, but remain calm. Ars Longa, Vita Brevis.